here this morning. I want to thank you all for the invitation extended to me and my family to be with you uh, yesterday and then again today. Such a joy to be together and enjoy your, your kind welcome, your hospitality, uh, your friendship yesterday and all the more today that we can come together multiple times, Lord willing, and set aside the cares of the world to, to focus our minds and hearts on God, to worship Him in spirit and in truth. And so I thank you for the opportunity to preach the Word of God to you here this morning. And before we get into our lesson, uh, let's bow and go to God in a word of prayer. Our holy God, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. We humbly come before you, Father, on this beautiful first day of the week, thanking you for the blessing that it is to be assembled together in this place, to be able to come together to consider truths contained in your word and focus our minds upon what you have revealed to us regarding our soul and salvation. And we pray, Father, that you would help us all to desire and long for eternal life in heaven more than anything else, and that we would have the good faith, the good wisdom, the good courage to live a life consistent with that desire, a life lived in devotion to you, that we might always seek to give you glory. We're thankful for the good church here and their light in this dark world. We pray that they would always look to your word to guide them, that they would always live it out faithfully, and they're coming together like this and us with them today that we can all be edified and that you can be glorified. That is our hope and prayer in the name of Jesus. Amen. This morning in our first hour, we want to deal with the question, does it matter what I did to be saved? And I hope you can realize and appreciate that this is a great question, whether you've obeyed the gospel in times past or if certainly if you've not yet obeyed the gospel, the things we have to share I think would be of utmost importance to you, would sober us up and, and steer us toward obedience to the faith. For those of us who are children of God, hopefully the things we'll discuss here in this first hour will help us as we strive to evangelize. As we are answering the questions and we're seeking to lead others to Christ in this world. A great question, does it matter what I did to be saved? Any concern about one's salvation is something, again, needs to be taken very seriously. It needs to be respected as an urgent matter. It is vital that we get this one right. You think about it, the difference between being saved and being lost is the difference between bliss and damnation. It's the difference between comfort and torment. The difference between life and death. Ultimately, eternally, it is the difference between heaven and hell. And ladies and gentlemen, the only way that we're going to know the truth about this or any subject is to go to the Bible, the book of God. You may recall in John chapter 17 and verse 17, on that occasion... Jesus was praying on behalf of his disciples, and he says to God the Father, Sanctify them by thy truth. Thy word is truth. Don't you ever forget that. The word of God is truth. It is the standard. It is our source of authority. 
If and when we want the straight on anything, we're to consult the book of God. So let's go there together this morning. Let's have an open book, an open mind as we address this question. Let me first point out, I appreciate the fact that our question implies the need to do something. Notice again, does it matter what I did to be saved? The implication is that I did something seeking salvation. Maybe you did something else in effort to, to receive forgiveness of your sins. Maybe a friend, a loved one was even instructed to, to follow some other form of teaching. But this idea of doing something to be saved, that in of itself is a foreign concept to many. There are some in the religious world that would tell us sinners such things as, you don't have to do a thing to be saved. Some would tell you why Jesus did it all for you on the cross of Calvary. Some would say your salvation is totally up to God and there's nothing you can do even if you wanted to. Well, if that be so, somebody forgot to tell Jesus. Because in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 21, Jesus makes it abundantly clear. When he says, not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Notice Jesus says, heaven is reserved for who? Those who will do the will of God the Father. Consistent with that, in Luke chapter 6 and verse 46, Jesus asked the rhetorical question, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, but do not do the things which I say? For Jesus to truly be Lord of your life, to be Lord of my life, we must submit to Him. We must yield to Him. Yes, we must be obedient to Him. Yes, dear friend, your salvation is dependent upon you doing something, responding in some way. Understanding that to be so, let's consider a few of the somethings of men. What are some common doctrines pertaining to salvation? We're talking about the somethings of men. We're talking about things like faith only. The doctrine of salvation by faith alone is extremely popular among this Protestant denomination. As a matter of fact, the Methodist discipline actually contains this quote. Wherefore, that we are justified by faith only is a most wholesome doctrine and very full of comfort. But they're not alone. So many live by this teaching that if I just believe... It'll be all right. When we're talking about the somethings of men, we're talking about things like the sinner's prayer. I can't tell you the number of times that I've picked up a track encouraging readers to recite words like these. Heavenly Father, I know that I am a sinner and that I deserve to go to hell. I believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins. I do now receive him as my Lord and personal Savior. I promise to serve you to the best of my ability. Please save me. In Jesus' name, amen. You ever come across one of those religious tracts encouraging you to, to say something like that? And I will grant you those words bear out a commendable plea. Look at it. They, they show humility. They show acceptance of responsibility. 
They express a confidence in Christ, commitment to God, all noble qualities. But what about it? Is the sinner's prayer, is it really scriptural? Is it part of God's plan whereby man can be saved? When we're talking about the somethings of man, we're talking about things like salvation without baptism. I want to share with you part of an article entitled, Is Baptism Necessary for Salvation? These words, one of the most nagging questions in Christianity is whether or not baptism is necessary for salvation. The answer is a simple no. Water baptism is not necessary for salvation. Now those words were written by a man named Matt Slick. He holds a Master's of Divinity from Westminster Theological Seminary in California. Well, Mr. Slick, he's certainly not the only one out there who would hold such a view. You're familiar with the fact that the notion of salvation apart from water Baptism is quite common. But what about these somethings? What about these various popular teachings of men? You're concerned with right. You're concerned with truth. You want accuracy. And so the question is, what does the Bible say about these? Specifically, what does the Bible say about faith only? The only place that you can find the phrase faith only in the New Testament is James chapter 2. I bid you turn over and read with me verses 14 through 24. James the second chapter. Notice verse 14. James asks, what does it profit my brethren if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? Rhetorical question. The answer clearly implied. No, that kind of faith cannot save. A faith that is simply taught but not walked. And then you keep reading. He gives a physical illustration to further make the point. Look at verse 15. He has, if a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what? Does it profit? Again, notice he's throwing out there, if you just give lip service, you've not really remedied the problem. You have not truly helped if you fail to act, to do something to benefit the one in need. And thus the conclusion, verse 17, thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe there is one God. You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works? When? When he offered when his faith moved him to action, when his faith moved him to obedience, when he offered Isaac his son on the altar, do you see that faith was working together with his works? And by works, faith was made perfect. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness and he was called the friend of God. 
You see then that a man is justified by works, watch it now, and not by faith only. There it is, the only place in Scripture you'll find those words together, faith only, faith alone. And in this context, it says that's not the way to go about it. In verse 24, it clearly shows you that that's not how justification is had. Make no mistake, the Bible teaches salvation is by faith, Romans 5.1, but denies that it is by faith alone. Again, back there in verse 14, that man without works, though he has faith, his faith is dead, it cannot save it's inactive, it's disobedient, it's workless. Again, verse 17, it is dead. And then think about consistency issues on this matter. People go around, they preach and teach and they believe, and they go to the grave, and faith only, faith only, faith only. Listen, if faith only could save, according to verse 19, even the demons would be saved. If not, why not? The demons believe. They recognized when Jesus was on the earth that he's the one. But they weren't going to submit to him. They weren't going to yield and bow down before him. Well, if faith only would save, demons would be saved. You won't find anybody teach that. I tell you, as a side note, of all things false teachers are accused, consistency isn't one of them. Salvation by mental ascent alone is not upheld in Scripture. Faith only is not wholesome. And any kind of comfort that is derived from that teaching is deceptive according to truth. But furthermore, what does the Bible say about the sinner's prayer? No honest person can take the New Testament and turn to an example of someone uttering the sinner's prayer in order to be saved. And you know why no honest person can do that? Because it's just not there. David Brown, in his good article on the sinner's prayer, had this to say. Further in the book of Acts, Luke records nine cases of people who were converted to Christ through the preaching of the gospel of Christ. The sinner's prayer is not found in any one of the nine cases of conversion. Now that's a true statement, but before we go further, just think about that. Those nine cases of conversion he talks about, that's actually nine accounts of thousands and thousands of conversions. You think back to Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost where the gospel is proclaimed to those Jews gathered there. Some 3,000 souls were converted then and there. Further in Acts chapter 8, Philip goes down to Samaria. He preaches Jesus to that city and many, a plurality of those in Samaria obey the gospel, are converted Later in Acts 8, you read about the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch. Acts chapter 9, as well as chapter 22 and 26, you read the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. Acts chapter 10, the first Gentile convert, Cornelius and his household. Acts chapter 16, you read the conversions of Lydia and her household, the Philippian jailer and his household. Chapter 18, a plurality of Corinthians. Chapter 19, the book of Acts, a plurality of those in Ephesus. And so on and on, literally thousands of conversions under consideration. This great history book, the book of Acts. 
Now back to Mr. Brown's words, he says, Surely if the sinner's prayer would be found anywhere in the New Testament, it would be in the inspired book that records the early church's preaching of the gospel and those that responded to it in order to be saved. After all, Paul declared that the gospel is God's power to save men from sin, Romans 1.16. Therefore we understand why Jesus ordained that it is to be preached to every creature in every generation, Mark 16.15. 2 Timothy 2, 2. Surely if the sinner's prayer could be found anywhere in the New Testament, we would expect it to be revealed in at least one of the cases of conversion recorded in the book of Acts. But it is not found in the book of Acts. Neither is it found in any other book of the New Testament of Jesus Christ. That being the case, from where did the sinner's prayer originate? We can only conclude that it came from the mind of men and not from the mind of God. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, James 1 and verse 25. And I believe David Brown has nailed it. I believe he's right with what he's saying there. And yet how sad, how tragic that these words are true because no doubt countless alien sinners, both well-intended and sincere, have bowed their heads and attempted to pray their sins away. But God never authorized such. We're concerned with what saith the scripture. We're concerned with what is written. What about salvation without baptism? What does the Bible say about that? Where can I go in Scripture and accurately show that baptism is not essential for salvation? I can't. And neither can you or your preacher or your relative or your co-worker or your neighbor or anyone else. But I tell you what we can all do. We can all go to multiple places in the book of God and show where baptism is essential for salvation. Mark chapter 16, you're familiar no doubt with verses 15 and 16. Mark the 16th chapter, Jesus told his disciples, verse 15, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. This is Jesus, the Savior, speaking on the subject of salvation. And he says, if you want to have that, you need to believe the gospel and be baptized. Jesus says, baptism is essential to salvation. That harmonizes well with Acts 22 and 16, where we read more about that conversion of Saul of Tarsus. You remember Acts 9, the Lord appeared to Saul on the road to Damascus, but he was not saved on the road to Damascus. No, the Lord appears to him. He asked the Lord, what must I do? Jesus told him, go into the city, and there you be told what you ought to do. And now that he's in the city, a disciple by the name of Ananias, Acts 22, 16, comes to him, and here's what he tells Saul of Tarsus. He says, why tarriest thou? What are you waiting for? Arise and be baptized. Wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. For Saul to have his sins washed away, for him to properly call upon the Lord's name, he had to arise and 
be baptized. You know, that fits well with 1 Peter 3 and verse 21. How could God be any more clear on the subject of baptism and its part in salvation than what he had Peter to write in chapter 3 of 1 Peter, verse 21? There he's talking about how water played a part in the salvation of Noah and his family, lifting them up above the destruction. Now verse 21, he says, The like figure whereunto baptism doth also now save us. The book of God says baptism doth also now, N-O-W, save us. Man says baptism doth also not N-O-T, save us. Who are you going to believe? Who do you suppose got it right? My friends, the consistency and plurality of Bible verses teaching the necessity of baptism, it's not surprising when we learn to appreciate texts like 2 Timothy 2.10 coupled with Galatians 3.27. Think about those two together. 2 Timothy 2 and verse 10, Paul says to Timothy, Therefore I endure all things for the sake of the elect, that they may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Let me emphasize again, Paul by inspiration says that baptism is somewhere. Where is it, Paul? Or salvation, rather. Salvation is where, Paul? In Christ if I didn't know any more than that, and I'm sincerely concerned about my soul's eternal destination, my standing before God, and I understand that salvation is said to be in Christ, what's the natural follow-up question? How do I get in there? Salvation, said to be in Christ, as well as all spiritual blessings, by the way, Ephesians 1, 3, Eternal life, 1 John 5, 11, said to be in the Son, in Christ. How do I get into Christ? That's a Bible question. The best thing to do with the Bible questions, turn to the Bible, give it a Bible answer, and that's Galatians 3.27. Galatians 3.27 gives you the Bible answer to the question, how do I get into Christ where salvation is? Galatians 3.27, Paul said, for as many of you as were baptized, where? Into Christ have put on Christ. How did they get into Christ? They were baptized into Christ. Dear friend, without baptism, where am I? I am outside of Christ. I am somewhere other than where salvation is said to be. Now, make no mistake, the Bible reveals the one and only plan of salvation for man today. We must do as we're doing right here, right now. We must hear the word of God. Romans chapter 10 and verse 17, So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. We've got to have that faith, Hebrews eleven six. 6. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is. And that he is a rewarder of all those who diligently seek him. If I'm going to please God, I have to have faith. My faith comes from the word of God. Thus, I must hear the word of God. Be exposed to the truth. 
On hearing that word, yes, I must accept it. I must receive it. I must believe what it teaches. I need to believe not only in God the Father, I need to believe in Jesus Christ as the Son of God. In John 8, verse 24, Jesus said, Unless you believe that I am He, ye will die in your sins. Listen, we can either die in our sins, not a good thing, or we can be among the blessed dead, Revelation 14, 13, who die in the Lord. If I want to be among the happy, blessed dead, die in the Lord, I've got to accept that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Upon that conviction then, in obedience to the gospel of Christ, what must one do? We must turn away from our sin, have a change of mind or a change of heart that results or demonstrates in a change of action. This is repentance. Over in Acts 17 and verse 30, when Paul stood before those men of Athens, all the idolatry round about, he said, the times of this ignorance God winked at or overlooked, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. All men everywhere. That's me. That's you. That's the bank teller. That's the neighbor across the street. By the way, why do you suppose that all men everywhere need to change their mind, change their heart about sin? Because Romans 3, 23, all have sinned, come short of the glory of God. Three chapters later, Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death, spiritual death, separation from God. As many as have sinned and separated themselves from God are those who need to have a change of mind, a change of heart, need to repent. That's everybody. Have you repented of your sin? Upon repenting, turning away from sin, what must one do? We must unashamedly confess our faith in Christ. Romans chapter 10 and verse 10. With a heart, not the blood pump, but the Bible heart. The heart you believe with. With the heart man believeth unto righteousness. And with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Upon that good confession, Acts 8, 37, I believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. What then must one do? One then can be baptized, as we've already shown, where into Christ, Galatians 3, 27. Why? For the remission of sins, Acts 2, 38. We can obey what Jesus said, Mark 16, 16. Be among those who are saved. And when I comply with those terms... When I, yeah, I'll say it. When I do those very things, what is that? That is salvation by grace through faith. Ephesians 2 verse 8. It's neither earned nor merited. Praise God for His love, His mercy, His grace. That makes it all possible. And then those who, who submit to those terms of the Lord, they're to go on and be faithful. You know the text, Revelation 2 and verse 10, what, what the Lord said about those saints in Smyrna. You're going to suffer. You're going to be persecuted. Your faith is going to be tested and challenged. But be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee the crown of life. And so continued faithfulness is expected, is what God requires of those who would desire eternal life in heaven. Ladies and gentlemen, that is God's plan for saving man. 
Now, you're not going to hear that everywhere. But we're unashamed of the truth. We want to be accurate. We want to be right. This is what the book of God lays out. So back to our original question, does it matter what I did to be saved? Well, let's think about it this way. Did it matter with those Jews on the day of Pentecost? Look at Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, where the Holy Spirit falls upon the apostles and they begin to speak as the Spirit gave them utterance, verse 4. We see Peter's message here recorded for us. He talks about the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ. He's getting into the ascension of Christ. You drop down to about verse 36. He says to these Jews, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that as you come to believe this, you need to accept this as truth. Know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. That is, Jesus is now ruler and king. Verse 37, now when they heard this, not when they felt this, wasn't some better felt than told experience that overwhelmed them, no sir. No, when they heard this, when they heard these words of truth, and reason. What happened? They were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter, verse 38, speaking how? Verse 4, as the Spirit gave him utterance. We know he got it right. What must we do to be saved? Peter said, You don't have to do a thing. Christ did it all for you. No. What must we do to be saved? Peter said, here, I'll have the other 11 pass out this tract. You recite the sinner's prayer. If your Bible says that, it's a poor translation. You need to ditch that one and get another. He didn't say that, did he? I don't say that to be mean. I don't say that to be ugly. I don't say that to be funny. I say that to make the point. Had that been what was necessary for them to do to be saved, that's exactly what the Lord's apostle would have told them to do. And you better believe that's exactly what we would be telling men and women to do today. But that's not what he said. You know what he said. To those who had come to believe and accept that Jesus is the Christ, what must we do to be saved? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. Why? For the remission of sins. You drop down to verse 41. The Bible says those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. Question. Had you been back there and you'd been one of those Jews who had felt the guilt of crucifying Christ. And you recognize that, that you're in your sin and you're lost and you've just been told here's what you must do to be saved. You suppose it would have been better to have been among those who gladly received the apostles' instruction or those who rejected it. You know the answer. This must has not changed. Jude tells us that this gospel, the faith, has been once for all time delivered. The terms, the conditions for salvation right there on the day of Pentecost are just as binding today. And that's the only terms. So you suppose it would be better to be among those who gladly receive divine instruction today or those who reject it? As we gladly receive it, we will respond consistent with their response we will submit, we'll repent, and be baptized. Why some were baptized, why some were not, it made a difference what they did to be saved. What about the Ethiopian in Acts chapter 8? Did it matter 
what the Ethiopian eunuch did to be saved. Very interesting conversion. Philip has been down in Samaria. He's preached Jesus there. Great success. God has more work for him to do. And so he's going to go here. Look at verse 26. Acts chapter 8, beginning in the 26th verse, the angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, said, Arise, go toward the south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. So he arose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia. Here's one lone man. It tells you the value of a soul. I mean, leave all the good work in Samaria, go all the way down into the de for this one, yeah, the value of a soul. A man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all her treasury and had come to Jerusalem to worship, was returning. And sitting in his chariot, he was reading Isaiah the prophet. Then the spirit said to Philip, go near and overtake this chariot. So Philip ran to him, verse 30. Appreciate the urgency. Didn't take a casual stroll out to this law. So no, he ran to him. And heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? Appreciate the humility there. Here's an honest, sincere man. He's a religious. He's a spiritually minded man. Traveled great lengths to worship. On his return trip, he's reading Isaiah. He's got pieces of a puzzle, but he's not really getting it. And he's humble enough to acknowledge, I need some help. Do you understand? How can I unless someone guides me? And he asked Philip to come up sit with him. And the place in the scripture which he read was this. He's reading what we know today as Isaiah 53. Prophecy about the, the suffering servant, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter and as a lamb before his shear is silent. So he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation his justice was taken away. And who will declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. And so the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask you, of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or of some other man? Oh, the door of opportunity that's just been opened. Is Isaiah talking about Isaiah or is he talking about some other to come? And Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture. That is, he found where the man was in his understanding and he started there and moved forward. He, did, he preached Jesus to him. He's going to preach the gospel to the Ethiopian youth. All we're told is he preached Jesus to him. You keep reading, the Bible says, as they went down the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? And Philip said, if thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So he commanded the chariot to stand still. They went down into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they were come up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away so that the eunuch saw him no more. And he, the Ethiopian treasure, your new convert, your babe in Christ, he went on his way rejoicing. And oh, in the video that was shared with us yesterday, the cause of rejoicing. All those in the past five years that were emphasized who've obeyed the gospel of Christ, all those immersions, on the terms of the God, the cause for rejoicing. Why go to all that trouble? 
Here's a man traveling all the way back to Ethiopia. Why stop the chariot? Grown man inconvenience him to go down in mercy. Because it mattered what he did to be saved, and he had an urgent matter to deal with. Finally, did it matter with the Philippian jailer? Go to Acts chapter 16 quickly. Acts 16. Paul and Silas in Philippi, they've cast out this demon out of this girl, and now they've been mistreated. They've been beaten with rods. They've been cast into prison, verse 23. They're there in prison with their feet fastened in the stocks. Look at verse 25. It says, At midnight Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Then suddenly there was a great earthquake. So that the foundation immediately... The foundation of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened. Everyone's chains were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awaking from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. But Paul called with a loud voice, saying, Do yourself no harm, for we are all here. Then he called for a light, ran in, fell down trembling before Paul and Silas, and he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? No better question ever asked by anybody at any time than this question right here. What must I do to be saved? So they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. Now stop right there. That's where our faith only friends will stop. They'll say, look, the man asked the direct question, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe. Now, friends, when they stop right there, they're cheating you. We're not going to do that to you. Here's a great place for the Bible to be its own best commentary. What's involved in believing on the Lord Jesus? What does that look like? We've already studied this morning that you've got to hear to have faith. This man needs to hear something, doesn't he? Keep reading. Look at verse 32. Then they, that's Paul and Silas, spoke the word of the Lord to him. He heard the word. They spoke the word to him and to all who were in his house, and he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes. His repentance. He's having a change of mind about these men, more importantly about their message about the Lord Jesus they're preaching. And now he's bathing their wounds. He's trying to comfort and help these that have been suffering and had pain. And immediately he and all his family were baptized, verse 33. Now when he had brought them, Paul and Silas, into his house, the Bible says he set food before them, and he rejoiced, watch it now, having believed in God with all his household. Man says, what must I do to be saved? Verse 31, he's told, believe on the Lord. By the time you get to the end of verse 34, we're told that he has believed. May I suggest to you that what's involved in believing on the Lord in that sense are those very things we highlighted sandwiched in between verse 31 and verse 34. And you'll notice the rejoicing did not come. So after he's heard, he's believed, he's repented, he's been baptized in to Christ. But wait, I thought this was the middle of the night. Yeah, that earthquake at midnight. 
And now he's hearing what he must do. It's in the same hour of the night. He's responding favorably. Why go to that trouble in the middle of the night? No trouble at all. It mattered what he did to be saved. Does it matter what I did to be saved? Clearly, it does. In Romans 10, verses 14 through 16, how then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? How shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. Ladies and gentlemen, they have not all obeyed the gospel. But whether they have, or whether they haven't. What about you? Have you obeyed the gospel? That pure and powerful plan we've just considered. If not, know this. It matters now. And it will matter eternally. Make no mistake, the Lord is going to return. How? In flaming fire. Taking vengeance on those who know not God. And on those who obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These, verse 9, 2 Thessalonians 1. Who? Those who don't know God. Those who don't obey the gospel. Shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord. And from the glory of His power. We do not want to be on the receiving end of the Lord's vengeance. When that great day comes. And so as we bring our lesson to a close in this hour, we would encourage you to think very seriously and soberly about your own soul's eternal destination. If you've not yet obeyed the gospel, we would plead with you. We would encourage you. We would rejoice with you if you would do that this very day. Or if you've obeyed in times past but you've not continued faithfully, recognize your urgent need to repent of your sin, confess your fault, pray God for forgiveness. You want to be right in the day of judgment. And yes, it matters what you do to be saved. Thank you.